Welcome to the Matthew Moran Podcast. Here you will find a series of in-depth conversations with the world's best nature photographers, filmmakers, conservationist editors, writers, and publishers. You will get an insight into the lives of industry experts and the unsung heroes. What goes on in their minds, how they approach their work, and how they make it pay. The podcast also looks at the role that photography and filmmaking plays in helping to shine a light on the global plight of species. And despite the depressing statistics, we look for solutions of what we can all do to contribute to conservation. All my guests give up their precious time and they are incredibly generous of spirit. Now I'm sharing these conversations with you. Please, you, share them with your community. Get them out there. Every little bit helps. And that's what we really need right now. I really hope you enjoy this one. Thanks so much for listening. This week, my guest is Kabir Kaur. Kabir is a conservationist, writer and campaigner with a big passion for London's biodiversity. He's made it his mission to shed light on the often overlooked green spaces and the remarkable wildlife that calls London home. At the tender age of 18, Kabir has already achieved a huge amount and he is involved in so many different campaigns and getting powerful messages out there through speaking at rallies, writing his popular blog. You should definitely go and check that out. And this week, he is also presenting on the new magazine show, which is put together by Chris Packham and Megan McCubbin and other great young presenters. It's kind of filling a hole where Autumn Watch used to be. Uh, the first week just finished, but on Monday the 30th, it continues. Kabir is presenting again, so I suggest you check that show out. It's every night, 7.30pm on YouTube. We'll put a link up in Kabir's page. And there are other links to all of his work, his social media. Check him out. Give him a follow. He's going to go from strength to strength, I'm sure. And here, you get to hear a little bit more about his journey. So without further ado, here's Kabir. Kabir, welcome along. Thank you so much for doing the trip from uh, northwest London. Where where exactly are you? Uh, East Coast, Middlesex. East Coast. Um, it's, um, it's near Ryslip. Okay, so I kind of knew that you were close to Ryslip and I couldn't resist the opportunity to say that in a former life, more than 20 years ago now, 25 years ago now, I used to play semi-pro football and I actually played for Ricelip Manor. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I live five minutes away from Ricelip Manor. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So I've done what you've just done many times, like three times a week. I had to get on the Piccadilly line. And from Northwest London yeah, to yeah. Tottenham, North London. Tottenham, yeah. yeah, exactly. Then I was living in East Finchley and uh, I'd do those 27 stops all the way out to Ricelip and uh, yeah, and play football. And it was a great, you know, a, a great experience. But um, thanks so much for you making the journey all the way here. I know it's not easy, but I was saying to you before we started recording, this is really exciting to have a face-to-face -face interview. It's been over a year. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. Great. Um, yeah, so I, I much prefer it this way. And yeah, we're back in the Tottenham home studio, home of the podcast. And um, it's great to welcome you here. And I can't wait to get stuck into There's so much stuff you've done, even in your tender age of 18. And, um, but it would be great to hear a little bit about, you know, how you got into uh, wildlife in general. I know you're specifically a, a bird lover and a bird watcher. 
quick. Do you have a, an, a, a, a sort of penny drop moment or did you kind of gradually get into it over a period of time? Can you tell us a little bit about how you got into it? The truth is there was no penny drop moment. I didn't have any particular person influencing me. Um, no one in my family was particularly interested in nature at the time. It was just some kind of organic interest that developed gradually. Um, it could have been when my grandma was watching Planet Earth in 2008 or 2009 and I was three or four walked into the room and saw all these amazing animals on screen, the greater flamingos, the uh, pangolins, the armadillos, whatever was in planet earth, the African elephants too, whatever was in planet earth really captured my imagination. Um, seeing all these beautiful animals on screen to know that these existed, this amazing diversity of animals. And I slowly wondered over time, do any of these animals live on my doorstep? Can I see any of them around here? Um, and um, over time I became a bit of a, uh, a nerd. I bought these um, <laughs> animal encyclopedias. Uh, many of them. I didn't. I don't think I paid attention much to the uh, the descriptions or the um, uh, yeah the descriptions of the animals themselves. But just looking at the pictures, their distribution, their IUCN status. Yeah, I love doing all of that. And that that gave me that first um, introduction to uh, the diversity of species. Um, and there are these beautiful illustrations as well. That was amazing. Just looking at that and seeing. Seeing um, everything from a from a um, a kiwi to a to a uh, a mayfly to to a, a badger um, and this unbelievable diversity of life, I didn't think at the time much about wildlife in Britain, wildlife on my doorstep. Just interested in in animals in general. But then when I first thought about it, I looked into my garden when I was seven and saw all this um, this wildlife on my doorstep, mainly birds. And that's how I got to birding. It and was, what, what age were you around this? Yes, yeah, so seven or eight. Yeah. Um, and um, and um, I would see uh, pigeons and sparrows and and blue tits, great tits, goldfinches, the usual stuff. Um, and I and I wanted to find out more. I wanted to find out um, whereabouts I could see more of these birds. Where do they live in the local area? So I had uh, East Goat House Gardens, not too far away from Ricelip Manor, Ricelip Lido, uh, Ricelip Woods. That became my local patch. Um, and uh, I'd see a couple of hundred ducks migrating there every winter. Wow. To think they'd come from Scandinavia and Greenland and, and places like that was unimaginable. Um, and they'd come and feed Potchard and, and Shoveler mainly. And then there's this area of scrubland to the west of that called Paul's Field, which if you um, know when and where to look in that field, you can see amazing things like tree pipit and red star um, at the right time of year, mainly spring and autumn. Um, but learning about all this, um, seeing seeing this amazing, these uh, this incredible wildlife on on my doorstep, um, uh, mainly birds, got got me into birding. Um, yeah. And finally, knowing that it was in an urban area was very exciting because, despite this very built up area that I was living in, there was this. Uh, a vast array of, of different species um, in, in an area where people, um, where, where it's very packed during, during the summer. Um, and um, although there are so many visitors every day, um, especially during the summer, and there's the railway too, Rice of Lido still has this wealth of wildlife and you can see so much at any time of year. That's brilliant. And I think it's funny, I was thinking as you were talking about being inspired by planet Earth, certainly I was, you know, I think Attenborough was, has been an inspiration for so many. And then, you know, seeing all of this exotic stuff and part of me in the past, because my journey was always about leaving London and, you know, going to wilderness areas abroad because it was sort of disappointing here. 
and but big, you know that's just because you know we don't have big cats and we don't have elephants and yeah. all, of, all, all of the exotic stuff so but it's great to hear you talking about being really excited you know and not disappointed so as a kid you're watching all of this stuff and then you're going out to your woodland and seeing a pigeon like no no you were actually quite excited about about seeing these kind of birds and i and i've come to that a little bit later in life you know uk wildlife which of course as we know we can come on to talking about that in a bit you know the biodiversity here is so bad but there is really, really good stuff to see here. And you know, it goes without saying, we, we're both singing from the same hymn sheet that there is great stuff to see on your doorstep. Yeah, there is. There's, there's a lot. Um, uh, when you have the time, when you, when you look around, it doesn't have to be very far. You don't have to go far to see uh, wildlife in general. Um, and whether you start from um, a colony of ants crawling around a tree to uh, a woodpecker yaffling in, in, in the ash tree over here. Um, there's, there's so much to see, but you have to look. And I found that especially during lockdown, uh, I knew there was wildlife on my doorstep. I put out a bird feeder. I put out, um, I planted a few, um, a few, um, yellow rattle seeds, uh, a few meadow cranes bill seeds, um, knowing that wildlife was there. Um, but I didn't really pay much attention to, um, to, to what would be there throughout the entire year. It was just um, every now and then look into the garden, see what happens to be there. Uh, but during lockdown, that really encouraged me to, to, to look out of the window. And I found, I was trying to open, trying to find the right window to look at and, and go bird, and bird, bird from, bird watch from. Uh, I found it happened to be my bathroom window. <laughs> so I found this completely new view of the local area. Yeah. Uh, and there was a flock of starlings that come that came and visit, um, visited. So were every, you really annoying to your morning. family when they needed to use the loo? You were in there with your binoculars. Well, it was, well, it was my bathroom. So uh, my, my brother's bathroom. So uh, no, no problems there. But um, uh, I did open, open the window and one day I heard a willow warbler. Amazing. Uh, there was this um, fight amongst some of the starlings uh, and um, some of the robins were flying between the bushes on either side of the garden. And then I heard the willow warbler singing and it um, flew into someone else's garden. But uh, although it was like a fleeting glimpse of a, of, a, of that bird, to know it was there was very, very exciting. That's amazing. Um, and I think the most, um, the most unusual, the most surprising sighting from the garden, well, I wouldn't call it a sighting, it was um, hearing a call, was in the middle of the night, I was on this WhatsApp group for... London birders, and they were talking about this influx of common scoters that had come from um, the West Country and was flying over. Uh, they were flying over the Thames estuary and into Northwest London and and um, and Ricelip and going towards uh, here in the Lee Valley. Um, and I opened um, I opened my bedroom window and I heard this faint. Uh, uh, I wouldn't call it quacking, more of a honking in the distance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and yeah, it was a flock of common scoter. Amazing. Um, I wouldn't have known that if I wasn't um, so keen to look at the wildlife in my garden um, every day. Yeah. You never know what you might see no, that's on right. a given day. And I think that was the case for so many people during lockdown. It seems like a distant past now, strangely, in the end of 2023. But yeah, that was the narrative that came out and still seems to be so prevalent now was that it, you know, people really forced literally forced to stay at home yeah. or, you know, when, in the beginning, when we had, when we were allowed our one hour out for exercise yeah. or whatever. Um, but I think that was, that was a, 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 a turning point. I mean, I certainly know that from, you know, in the filming industry, for example, you know, film crews suddenly couldn't go out and photograph tigers in India 
but there were perfectly capable and decent Indian wildlife photographers and wildlife filmmakers doing stuff in their local patch. And, and, you know, again, we talk about carbon footprint, like there's a, there's, there's that added bonus of doing something local, yes. you know, walking to your woods or, 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 or getting on a train, you know, everything I do here, like it's really close to home. And I, you know, I've been, I've been writing, I, I was doing a, a, a write up yesterday because I'm speaking in, in a festival in Holland in a couple of weeks. And, you know, in, in, in the kind of my spiel, I'm saying, well, look, I've had the most success of all of my career doing stuff that's 20 minutes from my house. And, um, you know, and, and, and this is not to say, you know, it's not, I'm not anti-travel. I'm not saying people shouldn't travel, but I think, you know, look at home first. There is actually really, really cool stuff here. And, and and then there's that second thing of trying to engage people. So I know that you. It feels like to me you've done this fast track from the seven eight year old kid to being really into it and planet Earth encyclopedias to not only satisfying your own interests but then wanting to reach out to others and and get them into what you're into. And do you do you remember when that came about and or what your mission was and why? Yeah. So upon discovering this. Uh, all the wildlife in my local area, Ricelip Lido, Paul's Field, um, I wanted to share my passion for nature with others, um, people in general at this stage, not any particular age group. Um, so I wrote um, my blog called Call of the Wild and I started it. It's a great in, name, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Um, and um, I started it in 2017 and I'd write about wildlife in my garden or wildlife in Ricelip or or in um, or where I travelled recently with my family on holiday. Uh, my grandparents, uh, my mum's side of the family, are from the United Arab Emirates, so I'd go and visit them often. And um, I'd write, whenever I went, I'd write um, write a blog post about what I'd seen. Um, and in even in the middle of the desert, there's so much. And I wanted to, to share my passion for nature wherever I had gone. Um, but I soon found that I was one of very few people uh, that I knew, um, well, one of one of very few people in general, um, really, who um, who had uh, an interest in nature my age. Um, so there was just me, and uh, and that was it, really. <laughs> <laughs> so it was. It, I felt quite lonely. I was yeah. quite lonely for a number of years. Yeah. Um, but then I was at um, this um, this local group. I'm quite lucky to have an RSPB local group nearby because they're not. You don't always have one. Yeah. Um, sure. So in in Pinna, in this historic church, which is over 700 years old, um, a group of uh, birders and naturalists would uh, meet every month. Great. And still do today uh, to talk about nature and different aspects. They have different speakers each each uh, month. Um, and um, there was a lady there called Jean. Uh, and she said, um, my friends, Kevin and Corin, they run this camp for young people every year as part of the Cameron Bespolka Trust. And the Cameron Bespolka Trust um, does um, does brilliant work to to get children interested in nature and connect each other with nature uh, uh, through nature. Very importantly, um, connect people who have that interest in nature because, like I, much like I had found, there are very few of us. Um, and um, they um, and then and then Jean said, "Why did, why don't you go on this camp?" And I I didn't know where this was, so I did some more research and found that it was in Thetford at the British Trust for Ornithology, the BTO's headquarters. Um, and in 2018, I went to this, this camp, uh, and, um, and got inspiration 
from uh, from many of these young people there. Uh, very talented, very enthusiastic, very passionate young people, and they come from all across the country uh, um, to Norfolk, as far as um, as uh, Scotland and and other places. And now, what the British Trust for Ornithology does is is fantastic. They've they've expanded it to all four countries uh, of the UK, uh, but it started in in Thetford, and we went for a week of birding in in. Um, in Norfolk and Suffolk, in Lake and Heath Fen, in Thetford Forest, in in the Nunnery Lakes at the BTO, um, and again seeing this wildlife that I otherwise never see would have never seen if I hadn't if I hadn't gone to East Anglia, uh, hadn't gone to that camp, and I made uh, friends and and uh, and I felt like I was part of a community, but I felt like I belonged for the first time really um, with with people who shared the same interest, who spoke the same language, if if that makes sense. Um, and um, yeah, the bird birders have a special language. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, your original question was about uh, uh, how did I make that jump between being interested in nature yes. and starting to raise awareness. So it was partly through my blog. I connected with um, young people um, through through that when when I told people at bird camp about my blog, but also. Um, seeing the uh, the wonderful things that they were doing in their local area for wildlife, or or sharing their passion through nature, such as uh, wildlife photography, or uh, building nest boxes, or wildlife gardening, making a community garden, uh, or 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 gardening in in their school, wildlife gardening in their school, and these were all really inspirational stuff. And I wanted to learn more. I wanted to 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 raise awareness um and that 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 gave me the motivation and the inspiration and the courage i recently put to bed this project called nature reserves of london because i i've basically given up on it at the time i was really bored and been doing it for ages uh, it's this interactive map um and i that gave me the confidence to go ahead and and complete it and it was the first of its kind there are many maps in london of local nature reserves and and uh, designated wildlife sites and uh, wildlife sites in general. But this was the first publicly accessible version where all the nature reserves and wildlife sites were in one place. Brilliant. I published that in 2019. And that was, I would say, the start of my uh, campaigning. Um, but that was only because I had the courage from going on that camp um, and, and, um, and meeting all these uh, incredible people and uh, who I'm lucky to to call friends to this day. That's so, yeah. a lovely story. Yeah, it's really nice. And I like this idea of, you know, you having this passion, also being very young and like being vulnerable and honest enough to admit that you're lonely because yeah, it can certainly doing wildlife photography can be a lonely space. And I think we all need to like connect more and get together. You know, I've just been at the, the wildlife photographer of the year awards um, just last week and you can see it. All the photographers are so happy just to meet other photographers and, and talk and share. And I was telling you, I've just been on the Missouri photo workshop last month. And so much about that is the same thing is like-minded people getting together with this mission, you know, which is a good mission. Hey, let's, go out and tell stories that matter and that tell the truth, especially in this day and age. Um, and yeah, you're stronger together ultimately. And if you've got people around you that are, um, you know, in, in, into the same stuff, it gives you, know, you a bit more of a platform to push forward your ideas. And it's quite a nice segue into my next question or topic that I'd love to talk to you about, because, you know, you mentioned campaigning, um, and you know you've been doing this for a, a number of years now, and uh, you know I'd love to talk to you about this. You know how you go about doing it because it's a question I ask a lot of people. You know how do we, how can we make a change? You know in a world where all the news is so negative, like globally. I know obviously there local, there are local successes, and that's what we must focus on. But you know what's 
you know, what gets you up in the morning and what gets you kind of like enthusiastic about protecting the nature that you love? Well, knowing I can make a difference and there are a number of different tools which, with which you can, uh, which you can use to do that. I've got my blog. I will visit, um, I'll visit an area of London, um, and, uh, learn about conservationists work uh, in an, in a specific area of London, um, whether it's, um, the Thames the border of the Thames estuary at Bexley or very recently the Hognell Valley in Kingston. That was my most recent blog post. And to, and to um, draw more attention to the issues and challenges facing those areas, but also the success stories, as you say, there's local successes and they can be uh, incredible, whether it's the release of water voles or, or very recently beavers. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about that. I mean, maybe we could jump in right now and talk about talking about success stories. Like I saw you were there at that, at that release. And I photographed beaver six years ago in, um, in Devon, in East Devon. And that was a very exciting project around that time. You know, they'd given these beavers, uh, this five year license. Um, but yeah, in London beavers. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I know very little about this project, so, um, please tell, tell me and tell, yeah, tell the audience about it. Yeah. So when, when you're campaigning, you've got all these different tools there's, there's, uh, there's social media, there's, there's, um, and I, and I often speak as well at different events and, and different, uh, um, conferences, talks, uh, conferences and, uh, and, um, and meetings. Um, but, um, I think, um, one way in which, uh, as you know, the conservation world is quite small and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and, um, uh, Elliot Newton, who lives in Kingston, who I wrote the blog post about, and Sean McCormack, two uh, brilliant people who have done a lot of conservation work in Kingston and in Ealing. Um, they got together uh, with um, Friends of Horsenden Hill and the Beaver Trust. Uh, and I um, and one of the tools I used for campaigning was social media. And I got in touch with both of them through social media a number of years ago, 2019 or 2020. Uh, and um, we've kept in touch ever since. Our paths have crossed many times. I've been lucky to work with them a number of times and, and, and hear them speak um, and, um, and learn about their work. And um, they said, um, we're going to be releasing beavers. I thought, what beavers? Twenty minutes away from where I live. This is insane. Uh, beavers, um, and um, and this is London's first urban beaver population. And I say urban because London already has a beaver population in Enfield, but that's um, that's the countryside. It's more rural. Um, it's a former royal hunting ground. Right. Um, but this this was also this was equally very special because um, uh, with with the uh, the hard work of Sean Elliott and others, um, armies of volunteers coming into Horsenden Hill, this site in Greenford, uh, and clearing historic um, uh, litter and and um, and making the area suitable for the beavers, um, and and creating a space, uh, erecting a one point eight, I think it's a one point eight kilometer fence, a very high fence around the area to let people in and out, but uh, keep the beavers in. And as well as getting funding from the local council and the mayor of London, all of this is really hard work to Unbelievable, organize. Unbelievable, yeah. Um, and to have all those volunteers with with and 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 um, and the amount of time and the amount of effort they're putting into it is is a real achievement. Um, and just last uh, week, yeah, five days ago, um, they they released these beavers, family of five. Amazing. Um, and um, what I'm really excited about is um, I hope that. Um, apart from from inspiring the next generation, there are schools nearby, and hopefully that will capture their imagination. But also, people will know that these beavers aren't just in an enclosure; they will be um, bringing benefits to both the natural and the urban environment by um, 
by holding water, by slowing the flow of water, improving the water quality, improving carbon storage and sequestration. Um, and um, and at the moment, they're just making themselves at home. Uh, they'll be doing that for the next month or so. Yeah. Um, and then it'll be, um, there'll be uh, organised trips into the enclosure to see the beavers or, or there will be a little bit more access. But at the moment, the beavers are being left alone to do their own thing um, and, and uh, manage the habitat as, as, as they please. It's such a great <laughs> it's, story. It's really exciting that yeah. there are beavers in London. I know. And that's in urban London. Yeah, absolutely. And brilliant. Like you say, just 20 minutes from your house and you know, probably five years ago, who would have thought that? So yeah, those... I mean, that's, again, it's the answer to the question of, you know, you have to hold on to these brilliant moments yeah. of, you know, exciting conservation that's going on, you know, in our land. And I remember that from Devon, you know, the, the, the beaver was absent for 400 years, something like that um, in, in, in the UK. And, you know, look at what's happening. And, and, you know, we mustn't complain, even though we were like one of the slowest countries in Europe to do all of these reintroductions. But, you know, they are here. And of course, we do face um, a lot of... Um, you know, rejection around these kind of things and, 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 or these, these kind of conservation movements, but you mentioned the word hard work and it, and, and I think that's another thing and going back to the campaigning, it's kind of relentless, isn't it? We have to just keep doing it all the time. Um, if we want to improve nature for the UK and for, for many people to enjoy it. And I love the fact that you said that there are lots of schools around this area, because if a beaver can't capture a kid's imagination, then we're definitely doomed because they are <laughs> one of the coolest animals, aren't they? they are. I went, when I was just in the States last month, I was lucky enough to tag on a trip um, uh, after this workshop and visit the Ozark mountains. And I went canoeing there and you see evidence of beaver everywhere. And, and it just, you know, it's so simple, but I just think, God, this is incredible. This is an animal that can chop a tree down with his teeth, you know, and that's very like cool. <laughs> very, <Yeah. laughs> very cool, isn't it? Getting kids engaged uh, that way. So yeah, tell us a bit more about, um, you know, your campaigning cause I, and you've, you've mentioned it already, but um, you've been doing some work with the mayor of London as well. And I know that you're, are you, are you a youth ambassador for RSP? A youth council member. Youth council member, right. So yeah, tell us a bit about what, what, what that involves as well. So, a few questions, but yeah. Yeah. So I wear a number of different hats, um, number of different organizations. Um, and I, and I mainly talk, mainly, uh, bring attention to urban nature and the issues, issues and challenges facing urban nature, but also the solutions and raising awareness about what urban, uh, urban nature we have, because that's not always, um, something that people think about it's something that many people definitely don't think about. And I believe there's not enough attention and focus on these areas, especially where most people live. So, um, I do this through a number of different organizations, including the RSPB's Youth Council, and it's a group of fantastic young people from across the country um, who all have um, many different, uh, I, um, we all um, collectively uh, do a number of different things. Uh, we will um, use our own, all our own personal experiences and opinions and views to, to shape um, uh, our collective view on, on uh, internal matters, internal policy. Um, but also we, um, we will um, do, do events and talks uh, and le lectures and and raise awareness about the RSPB, but as um, its youth representative, right? Uh, because um, because it's 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 very important. There is very little representation of young people in the natural world in in the nature uh, sector. Of course, there's there's um, there's enough activities for for um, the youngest children and for students. Uh, and uh, and and uh, young people uh, eighteen and above, but in the middle, there's quite a gap. Right. Um, so that's um, 
that's the age group I'd say most of us are are in. Um, and um, and that's that's what we do. We we provide that youth representation, that youth voice that's that's needed within the organisation. Yeah, because it's kind of like what you didn't have when you were 12, 13, 14 was representation. Exactly. And these were the, what, this was one of the few opportunities that was available to me at the time. I was elected as a youth councillor by the youth membership uh, in, in 2019. I've had these uh, amazing opportunities since to go to different nature reserves around the country. What it used to be like before COVID was we would meet up uh, in a different place uh, around the country, but now uh, things are mostly done online, but we do occasionally meet up in person Great. Um, when we can. And that's always wonderful. Yeah, that's lovely. That's and um, uh, sorry. No, 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 that's fine. Please go ahead if you... Yeah, you also mentioned uh, the Mayor of London. I yes. Mean, it was a real honour and a real privilege to be a member of the London Rewilding Task Force. That's brilliant. An advisory role at the Greater London Authority. Um, so and, how, how yeah. did that come about, that that role? How, you know, these, these these roles are great, but, you know, does someone say, hey, Kabir, I've read your, your, your blog or I've seen you on uh, the SIBC show or, you know, how, how do these opportunities come about for you? Well, I campaigned uh, in the later stages of the campaign for uh, the London National Park City. Um, and I met uh, a number of different people within the Greater London Authority and the Mayoralty um, who um, who had also supported that uh, London National Park City campaign. That was declared in 2019. I spoke at City Hall. Um, and, um, and since then, we've kind of followed each other on Twitter, uh, myself and the environment team. Um, and we followed each other and, and, and the environment team has seen my work, uh, seen a number of my uh, different campaigns, my Nature Reserves of London map very recently, my, um, 70 nest boxes for 70 years campaign, which I led with, um, a number of different wildlife charities. But um, then um, through that connection, I was appointed by the mayor um, to be a member of the London Rewilding Task Force, which is this body of advisors, um, which um, uh, wrote a report uh, on recommendations that the mayor should accept um, on um, rewilding in London. Um, and it provides a framework for large scale, small, small scale urban rewilding, uh, which I think is very unique. Um, and we had the support of C40, the um, group of cities, um, and uh, which which the mayor of London is chair of, um, as well as um, as well as a number of different uh, organisations, um, but um, uh, many of whom were represented on the task force. But it was a real honour and a real uh, um, it was really unforgettable experience, very uh, very valuable experience because not only was uh, I able to contribute my own uh, views and and uh, and insights into um, uh, young uh, young people and, and youth engagement in urban nature, which is why I was brought on to provide that perspective, but also learn from people who had have been in nature and conservation for 40, 50 years, politicians, financiers, uh, ecologists um, in urban areas, um, so many people with such a, um, a breadth and depth of experience. Um, it was, it was really incredible. And, um, and I'm very lucky to have had that experience. That's really thoroughly enjoyed. Yeah, it. that sounds great. And I'm curious as well when you have people who have, you know, 50 years of experience and all of this breadth, as you say, you know, how did they take to a, you know, a young upstart like yourself coming in with new ideas? You know, how, how, how you know, how was that experience? And also moving in political circles, you know, can also be, I could imagine, you know, thwart with danger, especially when you're a campaigner and you just want to get stuff done and then you can suddenly see, oh, there's bureaucracy here and there's bureaucracy over there. What was that experience like? Well, it was, uh, um, it was great to learn from, from everybody. I, I came in and I, um, and I learned, uh, of, I was introduced to a lot more about different policies, different, um, 
ways of funding um, and um, and historically what has happened in London already. Um, but um, I was I um, I think my my ideas were certainly taken into account. Great, um, and um, and. It was it was wonderful to be able to have that opportunity to speak, uh, and I and I um, talked mainly about engagement with young engagement engaging young people in the natural world, um, but the others had um, um, had an idea of, of of my campaigning and my my um, the things I have done in the past, but but it was it was um, I I think it, it's fair to say that I I was I was represented there, um, um and um. And the report was published, and I was very, very pleased to see references on young people, Great. recommendations on the importance of getting young people securing yeah. those benefits for the long term in rewilded areas, yeah. and um, and passing on that knowledge to the next generation so that they can protect it for future generations. Um, these these rewilded spaces, these green spaces on their doorstep, no matter where they live, um, whether it's the London countryside or central London or inner London. So I was very pleased to see those recommendations there at the moment it's all about implementing them and the first stage of that has begun that's great uh, with um a new round of funding seven hundred and ten thousand pounds i believe um gone into the third round of the rewild london fund which the mayor has established the mayor is um has um uh uh made them created this fund to um to, to help um what we call rewilding stepping stones which is average sized green spaces, not too large, not too small, not like a parklet and not like the open countryside. Um, these local projects, these local communities yeah. who can demonstrate their commitment to um, securing those benefits for the long term, being more inclusive um, of the community, involving locals. Uh, and um, and um, um, it's wonderful because so many of these different projects are happening across London. That's great. Can um, you give us any, any, any examples? I mean, I, I was curious about how, you know, you've got this money set aside how you know how does an area you know how, how do you choose a specific area to work on you know is is this what what what's the strategy behind that and uh, yeah how, how how is the money spent on on what specifically well to be honest i um i wasn't in the uh, involved in the process of choosing and selecting the sites yeah um but um re- on a related um idea there were um there were large scale areas that we recommended in our report for rewilding in London, um, including the Colne Valley, Ricelip Woods, um, Rain and Marshes, um, where else? Uh, Enfield Chase uh, and a few others. Um, and uh, we'd um, done this with with uh, the help and advice of the GLA um, based on local knowledge and what was already living there and uh, the potential of the sites uh, to um, to provide um, benefits for the local community, get get local communities involved and the access, how, how easily accessible they are to the rest of London yeah. and the rest of the, um, the local communities. So there's all this different criteria, all these, this, this, um, this criteria that, that, um, that, uh, was used, um, to select these sites. Um, and, uh, the others that the, uh, rewild London, London fund, different sites have to bid for yeah. this, um, okay. this, uh, this grant, but, um, it's, it's, uh, great to see so many people, um, using these to rewild um, areas on their doorstep, um, getting lots of people involved. Um, and um, these can be anything from um, re-wiggling a river, restoring a river, uh, to uh, a reintroduction like the beavers. Part right. of the beavers, the funding for the beavers, came from the Rewild London Fund. Brilliant. So um, the money is is going into some really important projects around, yeah. around the capital. 
and that comes back to another you know lo local success story uh, again and you know i love how london focused you are and and it's already i mean i remember when i did my book on hampstead heath researching that i think it was a, a quarter of london landmass is green space you know you add up all the parks the gardens the allotments yeah. um and 47 percent yeah, of london is green space 47 percent, well, i believe so wow yeah. so yeah i mean that's i mean unless <laughs> unless like you know a large portion of that's been made up in the last 10 years that's amazing yeah and so you know and it's one of the things i always it's one of the, one of the things i love about living here is just how green this space is but that's not a given you still have to create good habitats to you know for the species that are already coming here but to 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 bring in new species yes um, at first of course, yeah. it might look like a green and pleasant land driving to, through some parts of the countryside and this is really the same for most urban areas in britain uh, and in general we've had the state of nature report recently only one in six one in six species is is threatened um in the uk um is is endangered um is at risk of extinction but um but this um this this is a common um site around the country where people will see these these woodlands or this farmland um and people who have seen who ha have had that lived experience of that change can tell you that that um that this farmland used to have nightingales and and uh, and these warblers and these these insects but now it's all gone mm. um and that's very much the case in parts of london where um areas have become more populated um places have been developed on built on um and what's left might look very precious they are green lungs they are very precious but they just don't have biodiversity there some areas are are declining in uh, many areas are declining in, in their biodiversity and many areas are still threatened today and even and it's it's a real shame because even when areas have statutory designations like triple s size there are major infrastructure projects like near the Colm valley where i live there's high speed 2 being uh, uh, being developed and without going into the debate it is has destroyed ancient woodland uh, and uh, nationally important sites for uh, ducks um, migratory ducks in the country um, and I used to survey um, that area for the wetland bird survey and these areas despite their triple SI designation are still being built upon wow. so it is a real concern yeah and you're seeing this firsthand literally in your own own backyard yeah yeah, yeah, it's awful, isn't it? And like you say, we could we could do a whole podcast on HS2, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, the awful damage that's caused. But um, we won't, and we'll talk about positive things as yeah. well. So yeah, um, I mentioned SIBC, the Self Isolating Bird Club, which of course Chris Packham and Megan McCubbin started during lockdown. It was a very popular show, um, hugely popular actually. You know, bringing very people popular. these Monday to Friday. Yeah, I know it's incredible, incredible effort. And of course I was involved in that with, with the foxes. This is before I'd even published a book, you know, doing stuff. And that's when I first became aware of you. And that's when I first learned about your yeah, work. Yeah, I know. That's why we're here today, which is great. Um, and yeah, no, it's just so nice. And they're obviously really good at, at getting young people and, and engaging with young people, yes. you know, and, 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 you know, the importance of that as well as giving young people a platform. And, um, you know, you've been doing great things ever since and we are actually both been invited back on and we should do a plug for the show because this will go out just before um it comes out a slight shift in name eight out yeah, eight, of, eight out of ten bats <laughs> which is which is pretty cool but same format and they're going to be doing uh two weeks starting on the 23rd of october i believe i think so yeah um and yeah can you tell us a bit about what you'll be doing um 
what they've asked you to do uh, during during this show? Yes, yeah, so I will be um, I will be the urban correspondent, uh, and I will be highlighting two areas. Both happen to be in Ealing. Um, one was the Beaver release, so right. I was filming for for Chris as well as um, as part of the London Rewilding Task Force, being there as a task force member. Uh, many others were there, and it shows you how how small the conservation world in London <laughs> is. Um, but the other one is Warren Farm Nature Reserve, uh, the campaign to uh, designate Warren Farm in um, in Southall as a local nature reserve because, um, and it's and it's crazy, a quarter of London skylarks live in that meadow. Oh, wow. Um, a quarter of the breeding the breeding skylarks live there, uh, along with um, yarrow pug moths, yellow-necked mice, three or four species of owl. Um, there is a lot in Warren Farm, um, and there's been uh, various different incarnations of, of campaigns to protect the site uh, against... Um, multiple threats but the current threat at the moment is that Ealing Council um, uh, published plans to um, to dewild most of the sites that's what I'll be talking about in eight out of ten bats but about Warren farm there is there is uh, there has been a lot more traction a lot more support since those plans were published in January from uh, Chris from Megan McCubbin from others um, and we are we have had lots of support and I I back in 2019 uh, when this version of the campaign started I said uh, to them, why don't we? Um, why don't this? Why doesn't this place? Why isn't this place a local nature reserve? I mean, look at it. There are skylarks, um, and they said, um, "Let's campaign for a local nature reserve." And um, uh, thanks to the, the vision and the work of the Brent River and Canal Society, the Warren Farm uh, Nature Reserve campaign, um, we have had this uh, this great campaign and a petition, uh, which has got over twenty three thousand signatures. Brilliant. But despite this, um, this. Uh, huge wave of support we've had recently the council are still going ahead with these plans but we will um um as you've said before it takes a very long time uh to to achieve certain things in conservation and in campaigning but we will keep doing what we need to do that's brilliant and like we should just say it now because there'll be people listening to this that might be interested i mean certainly i didn't know anything about warren farm but how you know we can get on board and sign petitions and help what would be the best thing to do yeah, so please go to the Warren Farm Nature Reserve website. Just type in Warren Farm Nature sure. Reserve, um, and there will be a link to the petition. We've got around twenty three thousand signatures. But yeah, please do sign uh, sign and share the petition. Brilliant. Yeah, no, we will. It's absolutely uh, sounds like a an amazing thing to be part of. Out of interest, what what was the land? Well, what what currently is the land? Who owns it? And obviously, it's been left in some state that's good for wildlife otherwise it wouldn't have all these species there what's the history of it the, the land was is owned by Ealing council right um, for a number of it's had a number of different uh uses so it was originally a farm a working farm um but then it was uh, owned by the inner london Ed- education authority or greater london council um and um and ownership transferred to the um to Ealing council um number of years ago um and they were sports pitches uh, warren farm sports ground was its original name um and they had changing rooms they had um they had um uh, a a um uh, they had uh, these playing fields um but over time the place well eventually the place became abandoned right the the changing rooms were abandoned they they are a brownfield derelict site now um there are there have been rare plants sighted on on that site as well as black red sarton uh, a few black red start sightings in the past. Um, so it does provide a home for some wildlife. But the majority of the site became acid grassland and neutral grassland. Acid grassland is a biodiversity action plan species. Um, 
well, uh, habitat, um, and it's got these uh, these um, rare and endangered red listed species like skylarks and others like um, different types of moths and uh, yellowneck mice and others. But this site became unique because um, mainly because of the skylarks, but because of the diversity of rare plants on the site as well. Wow. There are rare clovers and there are other types of plants that are very rare there. Very few, some of the only um, plants that they can only be found in that site in the whole of London or in the whole of Middlesex. It's very rare. Um, but um, that is because of the acid grassland. These seeds have just been waiting there um, to grow. <laughs> and then they've had the right conditions to grow after it was abandoned in the last 13 years or so. It's been, um, it's kind of uh, rewilded itself. Itself, yeah. I mean, that's yes. just incredible, isn't it? It's like you, if you just protect the land, nature kind of knows what to do. And of course, in some cases where you have invasives, you know, humans have to interfere, but it's a, one of those stories again. And I'm thinking as you're talking, it's such a, you know, on one hand, you, you know, we've got a massive housing crisis in London, and then you've got these sites that potentially could be built on and then the vested interest from both sides. It's, yes. It's such a battle, isn't it? It's we- such a challenge to manage different interests. Of course, you need to build houses, but if there are places that are already more suitable, like Brownfield site, build on those instead. The Ealing Council already has uh, seven, at least seven different sites in their own sports strategy, which they've outlined to be more suitable to build sports pitches on because um, these areas were originally sports pitches and they are therefore more suitable um, and they are more suitable than Warren Farm. So it completely baffles me mm. as to as to why they continue to to want to develop on Warren Farm, yeah. a meadow that has been reclaimed by nature. But um, they're, they're, these interests need to be balanced. More houses, of course, will need to be built, but these areas need to be in, built in a suitable place, not, not for political gain or for political reasons being built on nature in a climate and biodiversity crisis, we need these places for our own health and well-being, uh, um, and it's not just these species uh, being nice to look at or nice to have. This biodiversity supports us too, um, and um, of course helps to fight the climate crisis. We've lost so much of our wildland meadows; there are only two to three percent left in the country uh, of what they used to be, um, and Warren Farm is one of those. So, um, helping to um, to provide that that valuable public open space as well as um, storing carbon is uh, it has a wealth of benefits and we can't we can't afford to lose it. That's beautifully put. I think everyone listening to that should certainly be logging on right now and going to sign that petition. Um, thanks, Kabir. So I want to ask you a few personal questions about you know this is you know your campaigning is 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 you know really inspiring and it's great you're doing so much and and I'm sure you're going to continue to do that. But you know things like what's your favourite bird. <laughs> Kingfishers. Kingfishers, Kingfishers, without a doubt, Kingfisher. Wow, that's um, unequivocal, straight up, you yeah. know. <laughs> um, I love do you remember Kingfisher. your first sighting? I do, yeah. I was at Stockers Lake in, in the north of the Colne Valley in Rickmansworth in Hertfordshire. Uh, and it's um, it's this very large open body of water and much like Broadwater Lake uh, in the, in further down the valley, there is there are hundreds, a couple of hundred of migratory ducks that, that feed there every winter. Uh, and during the winter, one... No, it was during the spring. I think it was April in one, one spring. I was probably about 10 or 11 and I was going out birding, um, went to this bird hide, saw this kingfisher just fly past in a straight line. You could see it's blue and gold colours, just absolutely gorgeous. Uh, and um, and that, that was an incredible sighting. I will never forget it. 
But what I love about the kingfisher is not only its colours, because there's nothing like it in the UK. There's they're they're so beautiful, but also its characteristics. It flies in a straight line. It looks determined. It looks like it's it has a plan. It knows what it wants to do, and it's very resilient in the way it hunts. It will wait for such a long time, and um, and will and will um, and will um, not stop until it succeeds, until it's caught a fish. Um, and and um, and I and I often think to myself in, in hard times, I need to be like a kingfisher, <laughs> be more confident, <laughs> get through this. That's a great, yeah, great inspiration. It's nice to talk, nice to hear you talk so passionately about these encounters. And I wonder, with all the work that you're doing, and you know, you're about to embark on a gap year, and I know you're going to go to Birmingham University. You know, you're a busy person. Like, how do you find time to actually go out and 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 birdwatch for yourself and do what? has got you into this in the first place and what got you hooked? Do you, are you good at making time to go out and, and, and see stuff? It's something I'm still trying to do, um, especially during your, my gap year where I've got a lot of things planned. Um, and often um, I, I need to try and find more time to go out and, and, and do what I love, go out birding. And I have been doing it more often and it's been wonderful um, to reconnect with, with green spaces and nature in general. After such a long time, I was in, um, I was doing my A-levels for two years. I didn't go out birding. I went out birding um, sometimes, but not very often. Um, not even down the road to to Ryslip Lido. Wow! Um, so um, it was it was quite a hard time. Uh, but it's it's great to be going getting back into what I love doing, like this, uh, and um, and doing more doing more of what I love. But that includes birding, and I hope during my gap year, which has recently started, I can do more of that throughout um, until um, September, and hopefully. Um, find a place in Birmingham too. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you will. You've got that t- tenacious spirit. I was curious about, you know, we've already talked about what you what you do to, you know, in, inspire other people. But thinking about, um, you know, where would where would someone start? I mean, it seems like you had a really natural kind of process into it. You know, being at your grandmother's house, watching Planet Earth, and like reading encyclopedias. You know, there'll be a lot of young people that don't have that kind of natural drive or or passion. And you know, how do you try and foster excitement in 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 someone else? And how can you? And you know, we were we were talking earlier also about this issue of of the wildlife world, the conservation world. Certainly, the wildlife photography world is you know mainly white people, and what the wildlife photography is is getting better in terms of the mix of of, of, of female photographers around but you know people like yourself you know being a, a being a youth ambassador and you know being involved with the mayor of london office you know this is you know someone looking at you could could potentially be you know it could be really really inspiring for them and you know is there anything that you do or can do to to get younger people you know more involved well there's there's a number of different ways um there's um I think what I do with with my work, I don't know if you find the same um, with with your photography. Can't really measure the impact sometimes. No, that's um, right. So yeah. you never know. Someone might have seen one of your fox photos and said, "Oh, that's a, that's amazing. I want to get outside and see if there's a fox on my road." And I hope that has happened. I'm sure it has, but it's impossible sometimes to measure that kind of that kind of um, um, uh, impact. Um, so um, I'm hoping that one day there'll be someone who says, "Well, if he's doing, it, then I can do it." Um, but, um, there are, I think the best place is to start with education, because if you entrench something into the education system, like a natural history GCSE, which we will fortunately get in a few years, um, then, um, there will be, uh, a greater chance of more people, uh, taking that, that qualification or that course, 
or enjoying themselves in nature, but in a school environment where the school can provide the resources and gives the students the time to explore and learn about the natural world in a real world context. It's not just theory and scientific processes. They are important. That is what's being taught in schools at the moment. But in education now, what we really need is some more real real world experience, learning about those interrelationships in the local area, uh, getting hands-on. When children get hands-on in nature, they will feel part of it. They'll, they'll, they'll develop those experiences. They'll, not everyone will develop a passion for nature, but they will develop that knowledge and, that, um, and a bit of enthusiasm too. And that's what I hope. Um, and in my school, I set up a wildlife society with the help of my headmaster, who fortunately is a birder, a very keen <laughs> birder. Um, so uh, he helped me and um, we did some great stuff. We, um, about, um, uh, I think our highest turnout was 14, 15 people, but we had around eight, nine, 10 people uh, from my year group. And we would, um, we would do a number of things like uh, walk around the school site. We did a big school's bird watch one year. Uh, didn't see very much, but, but at least got, got the, uh, got some of my friends and peers thinking. Great. Um, and, um, uh, we've had, uh, another, um, uh, another member of staff who was also a birder, uh, to, um, who, who's been really passionate. We've got, he's, um, he's been, um, he's been digging a pond in school. We've got some, some frogs and, and newts. Brilliant. Um, we've got some more, um, focus on biodiversity, um, and, uh, planting wildflowers and, and plants for a hedgerow in the past. Um, so it's been great. Um, and I think how, however, while what my school has, do, is, has done and is doing is really good, that is not necessarily going to be the same everywhere else. So my hope for the future here would be that we need to entrench something in the curriculum and that will come with a natural history GCSE. That's a very good start, but we need more uh, practical experience um, so that people of all ages, all backgrounds, all ethnicities can get involved and feel like they're part of something, feel more confident where if they may have an interest in nature and they may not have the people around them to support them or, um, or something will prevent them from being supported or, or bringing out that passion, that they have that opportunity available to them. I think it's very important that we get that right across the country. Um, and you're right. It's like, if, it, if it's there, like, you know, you, you study maths, science, English, and if that GCSE is there, it, you're right. It does. It's, it's casting a wider net of potentially of catching, you know, people, like you say, that don't have that, support network around them like you know you or i had in in your in, in, in our childhood it's great that um something will be there that could you know pick up you know new kabirs or you know new anyone else's to go out and start loving it and then you know by loving it you ending up wanting to protect it um it really sounds like a great thing um i was curious about we mentioned a little bit about your gap year you know you've obviously worked really hard to uh, over the last couple of years doing your a levels um do you have any plans to to travel at all i mean what 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 are you going to do during this you've got this whole year you know first time in your life you've got a whole year off essentially <laughs> i know you're a hard worker naturally but are you going to give yourself some uh some some downtime yeah what are your hoping plans to, hoping to, to go uh, to different parts of the country see different nature reserves see different different areas um and um, I don't have many plans other than my my um, work experience, which I'm learning more about urban land management and environmental policy, um, to get more more uh, more depth of knowledge in those areas. Um, but also, um, 
yeah, I think it's something I need to figure out. Just, I guess, meet more people, um, go out birding more often, uh, and, and, uh, and, and relax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think you've, uh, I think you've earned it. Um, and do you think, you know, in five, 10, 20 years, you know, do you have those visions of where you might like to be and what you might like to be doing? What are your hopes, wishes, and dreams? For a long time, I wanted to be a broadcaster and still do. Um, and um, not not as a full time nature presenter, but um, but presenting documentaries every now and then, uh, especially in urban areas. And I'd want to. Um, I feel like I've I've um, I I would love to still raise awareness about nature here in London, but I would love to see other cities as well as London um, uh, around the country and in other parts of the world. And that will be a gradual process. I don't know if I'm going to be doing that during my gap year, but I'm going to go to Birmingham next year, and that'll be a good start. Yeah. Um, so um there's there's that but also i hope that um yeah that 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 more more people would would get involved in in the natural world very simply um and and notice and i like to say notice appreciate and protect the natural world there are a number of stages through which people need to go to 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 to, to gaining that sense of stewardship and and that this is my local area or uh, this is this is uh, biodiversity in in my city or in my town and i wish more people were connected in that way. I am hopeful for the future that there will be more of these opportunities available to the general public. But um, at the moment, not enough focus uh, is directed towards urban areas where most people will be living. 60, 60, I think it's 68% of people in the world will be living in urban areas by 2050. That's that's more than two thirds. Wow. So we really need that focus. Um, and, um, and the other thing is, um, I hope that... Um, uh, politicians of, of any party will take the, I think there is, there is a, there is a good, um, well, I hope they can take the climate and nature crisis seriously. There is a good focus on the climate crisis. Politicians tend to talk about the climate crisis, but that is often talked about separately, uh, without any mention of the natural, uh, the nature crisis or the biodiversity crisis. And we need more focus on that, more, more, uh, viable, um, and, um, and stronger and clearer policies on those. And we're going to have a general election next year and whichever party wins needs to have that focus on the natural world in addition to climate change. You need to realise those those two, um, those two um, uh, aspects are intertwined um, and um, local action is, is going very well on the regional government. And here in London, we've got the Rewild, London Rewild Fund, the task force uh, and um, and uh, many community projects, and I imagine that is the same in many cities across the UK as well. There is, there is, um, there are people who are um, taking the matters into their own hands as well to protect the natural world. And there's, there's a number of different campaigns I've come across around the UK uh, in cities. Um, but it can't just be down to local people. That simply isn't enough. Um, so we need those policies, and I think that would be my wish in the short term future. In the long term future, it would just be for more people to to learn about nature and protect nature in urban areas. Kabir, that's brilliant. And it's been so lovely talking to you. It's whizzed by. We've been speaking for an hour. Wow. <laughs> doesn't feel like an hour. No, it doesn't, <laughs> does it? Um, and uh, what we'll do is we'll put all the links up, certainly direct people to your blog and your social media in the notes um, on my page. And you know, it's funny as you're talking like so passionately and so brilliantly there, you know, after me asking, you know, are you going to relax during your uh, <laughs> your year off? And you said, yeah, but you're going to also get really stuck into some things. I've just remembered one more thing. Yes. Um, one, one way in which I've recently got 
um, or aim to get more children involved in nature. And of course, it's often difficult to measure that impact, as I said, as I've said already. But one, I think, my second major project or campaign has been the 17 S boxes for 70 years campaign. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about this in more detail because I had a meeting with the head teacher at my daughter's school. And I mentioned that you were coming here on Monday and I said, look, I need to find more out about this. So yeah. actually rather than just telling me privately, tell the audience cause it's, it's a brilliant campaign. Okay. Are, are we still on Yeah, on totally. Okay, Let's great. do it. <laughs> um, so um, I had this idea back in 2021 um, and I thought the Platinum Jubilee is coming out. Um, the Queen will be on the throne for 70 years. It'll be her 70th year on the throne. Why not get more children involved in nature using the Platinum Jubilee as a as a vehicle to do so, to commemorate the Platinum Jubilee, but inspire more children to learn about um, wildlife in their school grounds where it's accessible to them, no matter where they are in London. So I got together with the wonderful Cameron Bespolka Trust and... Um, and uh, uh, Swift Conservation um, and CJ Wildlife, these three charities. And um, Swift Conservation provided the Swift Box, the Swift Boxes. Uh, CJ Wildlife provided the majority of the standard garden nest boxes. And um, the Cameron Bespolka Trust um, uh, also uh, um, raised the profile of the campaign as well and ran the campaign. Um, so it was, it was phenomenal. I did not expect the reception that we got from this, <laughs> but our aim was to get 70 nest boxes into 70 schools across London, 70, uh, one, one nest box for each year of the Queen's reign. Um, so, Brilliant. um, we got this, this large spreadsheet and, and kept track of, of all the different, uh, schools that were signing up. First school to sign up was my school in, in, in Harrow, <laughs> in Pinner. Um, and, um, and it was, and it was great to, to see the response, uh, we got um, we ran the campaign between January and March, uh, and we didn't get seventy. We got one hundred and six oh nest boxes, goodness. and it was unbelievable. Um, and what's more is that these schools were in twenty-eight of the thirty-three London local authorities, so the vast majority, even in the city of London, Brilliant. in the very centre of London, and in Westminster. Yeah. Um, so that was that was a real success, and. Um, I got uh, these pictures um, from teachers, head teachers um, of schools that um, uh, from from these schools who had hung up their nest boxes. And in fact, one was down the road here, Harringay Learning Partnership, oh, um, and um, I think I think that's what, yeah, Harringay Learning Partnership, and um, and they had signed up. They put um, their photos on social media. Great, and that was great. great. Um, and um, in fact, here in Harringay, I think it was the borough, one of the boroughs with the most schools to sign up around. Around something crazy like eight or nine. Brilliant. Um, so that was that was amazing. Well, you and you know your 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 people did a great job of obviously getting the message out there as well to reach these people. Yeah, and we used we used Twitter and yeah. we got the support of um, of people like Chris Packham and uh, the Urban Birder uh, David Lindo, um, and they they promoted the campaign, um, and so did the, the Greater London Authority. They they uh, liked and retweeted, quote tweeted sometimes, um, and. Um, uh, the last nest box of the campaign went up in the Downing Street garden. Um, so I was, um, I was invited to this um, Downing Street lunch to celebrate the Jubilee and, um, and volunteers, uh, government, uh, government recognized volunteers. I was recognized with a point of light award back in 2020 for my work. Uh, and um, I was invited to Downing Street. Uh, unforgettable experience, but I handed over this nest box to them and I got this letter in the post um, from 
the then Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, and he said, uh, thank you for this nest box. Uh, and I told the civil servants, uh, make sure it's uh, kept uh, out of the reach of Larry. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the cat. That's yeah. brilliant. And there's a lovely photo of you outside number 10 of yeah. on, your, on your website with that nest box. Um, Kabir, what a brilliant and hopeful and wonderful way to end this podcast. And thank you so much for, for coming along. And we'll uh, really look forward to hearing more about your gap year and, and following your journey in the future. Well, thank you, Matthew. I really enjoyed it. so much to Kabir. What a delightful young man and what a brilliant conservationist. And I just love his attitude at this age. Not disgruntled, not moaning, just doing stuff, getting out there, getting local people engaged. It's so important. And yeah, I can't wait to see how his life and how all of his campaigning unfolds over the next few years. So follow him. Um, he is more active at the moment currently on uh, Twitter. His handle is Call of the Wild. I love that name. That's his surname, K-A-U-L, of the Wild UK. Um, and that's also his handle on Instagram. Go and check out his blog on his website. All the links are over on his page, on the podcast section of my website. And yeah, let's give him the support that he needs to continue to get the message out there. He is also featuring this week on the 8 Out of 10 Bats magazine show that Chris Packham and Megan McCubbin have put together with some brilliant young presenters. I'll be featuring on that as well with an update about the Fox work. It is kind of replacing Autumn Watch, which was bizarrely cancelled by the BBC. And again, I love what these guys are doing, just getting out there and filling it with great content. It's a really cool show. First week was brilliant. It starts again on the 30th, 7.30 every night on YouTube. You can watch it worldwide. All right, that's enough for me. Got another great guest lined up. I know there's been quite a gap between podcasts. Sorry to my regular listeners. Sorry to Marcus Westberg, especially. Um, he's my biggest fan and uh, always pushing me to, to do more. And I'm doing it. I'm doing it, Marcus. I promise. All right. Thanks again for listening. So get this out there. Share it with your community. It's a big resource. Lots of great people. And I'm going to continue to find great people. So stay posted. <laughs>